Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is uh, Al Franken. You know, when I was in the Senate, I sat on the Judiciary Committee. And uh, my fifth day in office, I found myself in the Sonia Sotomayor confirmation hearing. This is July of 2009. When it finally got to my turn for my opening statement, I called the Roberts Court an activist court. Evidently, no Democratic senator had said that before. And since then, the Roberts Court has continued to overturn precedent with Citizens United, which brought billions of dollars of dark money into our elections, and uh, to undo laws that had been written by Congress with uh, Shelby County, which effectively overturned the Voting Rights Act. You really don't have to look further than last spring's Janus decision, uh, which made it harder for working people uh, to organize, to negotiate for more pay, in order to understand that this has been the most pro-corporate court since the New Deal. And with me today are two of the best minds in our nation on this subject of our courts. Nancy Gertner is a professor of law at the Harvard Law School. She uh, got that job uh, because she is 100% Ashkenazi Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Prior to that, she was a federal judge for 17 years. Jeffrey Tubin is a lawyer, journalist, and author. Uh, He is the chief legal analyst for CNN and is a staff writer for The New Yorker and is well-known for best-selling books like The Nine about the 1959 Chicago White Sox. Now, it was about, of course, the Supreme Court. You wrote that in 2007. right. And And then I wrote a sequel in 2012 uh, called The Oath about the, the Roberts Court. Okay. But that was the Roberts Court six years ago, which is a lot's changed since then. Yeah, so don't get that one. <laughs> but this is about the, the 2007 books, about the 30 years previous, Correct. right? It's, okay, it's, okay. It's so long, you know the yeah. court. You know the court. First of all, thank you both for taking time out of uh, your busy schedules. And I know that you just came from uh, a little Manafort, what's it called? A hearing? A hearing. Right? It was a hearing. Right. Uh, but I don't want to, I just was, don't want to talk okay. about the Russian thing. Fair enough. It's talked about. Fair enough. Uh, I agree. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, uh, we'll take that out. <laughs> because that's too much about the Russian thing. And I want you guys to take this over, basically, because I was not a a lawyer, and uh, I played one in a sketch. Now, Nancy, I know you wanted to talk about the Federalist Society. And Jeffrey, (laughs) you wrote a profile of Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, did you not? I did, indeed. Yes, you did. I was thinking of getting into it with uh, Kavanaugh's no president has consulted more widely or talked with more people from more backgrounds to seek input about a Supreme Court nomination. Is that true? 
you know, th- this is something that maybe you can help us out with, mm-hmm. Al, because it's it's a subject of great interest to me, This the political dimension of all this. Here's Donald Trump. Libertine lifestyle had said in many it, 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 many times that he was pro-abortion uh, rights. Sure. But when he decides to run for president, he sees where the Republican Party is, and he realizes he needs to make overtures to the conservative wing of the party. And he knows that the, the, the most important issue to them are the courts, and especially the Supreme Court. And he and his advisors come up with this idea of announcing in advance the pool from which he will pick a Supreme Court justices. And and he, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, chiefly Leonard Leo, who I wrote about in that New Yorker story, they write up this list and they are all 100 percenters. They are all, you know, firmly right wing judges who are committed to a you know conservative agenda for the court. Most notably, and they have to be right. 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 But it's, it's like having a slate. It's like you had a slate for who's going to be you're going to run with. And you had a slate of judges. It was unheard of in American. So unheard of. But but here's the thing. It was incredibly perceptive on Trump's part because conservatives care about the courts in ways that liberals, at least in a aggregate sense, don't. That we, we don't enough. You or don't. didn't. Right. Or didn't. Didn't. Because right. post-Kavanaugh, right. I think we we'll do see. more. But they, they mobilize after Kavanaugh, you know, I think uh, – more than they had before, they were energized by that. But we also uh, we also don't have an orthodoxy like the Federalist Society. I mean, there's no analog. There's the American Constitution Society, which are supposedly lawyers yeah. that, but but it's a big tent. ACS, the Federalist Society is an orthodoxy. So even if the left mobilized, you wouldn't get a slate like this. Well, I'm not this I, actually. Orthodoxy. I'm not sure I agree with you about that, Nancy. I mean, I think there's a pretty clear liberal. I mean, it's why the four liberals on the court vote together all the time. I mean, I, I don't have a big objection to that no, orthodoxy, but, but I think there is yeah. there is a... But that didn't used to be the case in, in the nine, for example. You talk about, uh, say, during the Warren court, there wasn't that much a division between conservatives. The, the, well, you know, the, the, the court replicates the broader political universe. And to me, the biggest story in American politics has been the evolution of the Republican Party. And there used to be moderates in, in the United States Senate. George there, W. Bush's uh, family uh, was right. started right. planned. And, and if you look at the history of the court in the 70s and 80s, moderate Republicans like David Souter, like right. Sandra Day O'Connor, like Anthony Kennedy, like John Paul Stevens, had tremendous influence. They're all gone. But part of the reason why the four vote together is because of what the right has consolidated so clearly on the court that the four who in a more moderate environment, would there would have been differences amongst them, but, but there aren't because what's being tried is so right wing. I mean, I saw that in terms of the judges that were appointed with me. The Democrats put people that were moderate to left, right? I count myself on the left, but most of my colleagues were moderates. You could predict maybe on abortion, maybe, but certainly not on presidential power, certainly not on Chevron, on administrative deference. You couldn't on a whole host of things. We'll talk about Chevron in, right, in a I'm while. Right, I'm really looking forward to that. Right, um, the Federalist Society is a, has my a, listeners aren't because right, they, they, they don't know right what it is. Sleep. But we will right. explain. <laughs> no, but trust me. But I'm telling you, Chevron is is the big sleeper issue. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. we're going to talk. Agree. Okay. So we I think we're going to whet their appetites by talking about the, Chevron. The, you brought up something which is yeah. that uh, Democrats don't care. Our voters don't care about the Supreme Court as much as uh, conservative Republican. 
do, and uh, that was a brilliant move by Trump. That and picking Pence got the evangelicals along, and I don't know what it would take to get the evangelicals (laughs) to drop Donald Trump. But we haven't cared because there have been a few decisions. They hadn't overturned Roe v. Wade, so we're happy with that. They approved the ACA, so we're happy with that. And they approved gay marriage. So we've not just been energized. Now, I want to play something. I want to play... Uh, This is a moment between Lindsey Graham and Gorsuch in the Gorsuch hearing. Had you ever met President Trump personally? Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if if he'd asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges do. They don't do it at that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they shouldn't do it at this end either, respectfully. Okay, now they had just come, by the way, in the Senate, you have a rehearsal space. So they had run these lines. This um, is completely baloney. Right. But it's important to talk about what kind of baloney it is, because it is true. No, but but it's true. It's almost bullshit. Well, well, that's a kind of baloney. Of course, Donald Trump didn't say, please overrule right. Roe v. Wade. No, 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 no. Why but that wasn't he? the question. Well, yes, I think that that was the question. That The question no, was, did he, he ask? Had, if he had asked explicitly, that, you know, would you overrule Roe v. Wade? Because the mantra is he would then be asking about a particular case. So he could have easily said, Mr. President, that would be inappropriate for me to respond to, but I would suggest you look at who sent me. Well, exactly. And, <laughs> right. and that's or the and, things I've written uh, or and, the other <laughs> cases I've done. Right. And, and there is a kind of code about legal, particularly constitutional law. And, and uh, Gorsuch had written about things like assisted suicide. Right. About the had, right to life, the right, which Which has nothing to an outsider to do with abortion. But the way he wrote about assisted suicide was about how government's obligation is to protect life in all circumstances. But, but there was also another thing which, which is connected to the organizational makeup of the Federalist Society, which is I'm persuaded that these guys are tracked. They're watched. They're invited to Federalist Society. They, we now have heard about people are looked at in law schools and who, which, who they are clerking for. So... It's not like tomorrow I become president of the United States and I say, where do I begin? They had a slate growing for some time and monitored these guys. And in addition, what's scary is that they knew they were being monitored. I'm persuaded when I looked at some of the concurring opinions of Kavanaugh, for example, that who he was talking to was perfectly clear. He He was was, auditioning. He was auditioning. That's right. That's right. And if you look at Donald Trump's lower court appointments, circuit court appointments, and even district court appointments, there are an abundance of former law clerks for Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. All set up. All like, you know, it's a network. It's it's a network. And, And, you know, look, it's important to say none of this is illegal. They took away the blue slip. And the blue slip was, uh, for example, Eighth Circuit, David Strauss, who is now a circuit court judge. A former judge on the Minnesota Supreme Court and a former Clarence Thomas clerk, I believe. Exactly. And I wouldn't return my blue slip. Now, just just for the audience, I mean, the the blue slip is, 
anytime there's a judge from your state, the two senators have to essentially not object, and they hand in this thing. It's physically a blue slip. Right. And you didn't do it for the Eighth Circuit. I didn't do it because, first of all, Strauss had been on the short list for the Supreme Court from the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. So right. that was enough for me. McGahn from the White House Counsel, we get on the phone, and he says, well, this is who we're going to nominate. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to approve him. I mean, he was on the short list. And he says, well, why don't you look at him, talk to him. And he seemed like a nice guy, and but he was terrible. He was terrible, his jurisprudence. And I said, no, they did it anyway. And and this is, again, and a perfect... And that's Grassley got rid of the blue slip. Because in, in a of way, that case, or because well, in, in general? It started that, with your case. It actually right, right. started with, with me, Dross, yeah. and um, Grassley was the kind of baloney that you're talking about. I got that from Grassley, too. But, you know, he was going like, well, you know, you shouldn't you know, oppose a guy just because he... Oh, you have for, him down. Yeah, you're oh, right. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, can I tell you a story about the first time I met Grassley? Uh, please. Sure, sure. Okay, first day I was in the Senate. I'm sitting across in one of the subway cars with uh, with Grassley, and he goes, oh, you look just like you look on TV. And I said, well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> but actually, people tell me that I'm uh, shorter than I look on TV. He said, oh, yeah, well, guess what they say about me? And I said, that you're taller than you seem on TV. He goes, yeah, how'd you know that? And I said, because you're taller than you seem on TV. <laughs> he said, well, guess what else they say about me? I go, that you're friendlier than you seem on TV. And he went, yeah. How'd you know that? And I said, well, because you're friendlier than you seem on TV. You know, it wouldn't hurt to smile every once in a while when you're doing an interview. He said, well, usually what I'm talking about is pretty serious. I said, well, you could smile at the top and then talk about the serious stuff and not smile and then smile at the end. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) So anyway, that's my first. So so he and I got along, but, but this thing, he would come to me and go like, well, just because, you know, he clerked. With Clarence Thomas, that's not a reason to turn him down. And I said, no, it's because he's on the short list and because I don't like his but jurisprudence. But, but here's an illustration of the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Pat Leahy, senator from Vermont, was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee when the Democrats were in the majority. And he honored all the blue slips. And that meant that, let's take, let's take Texas, for example, where you had Ted Cruz and, and John Cornyn. Cornyn, two conservatives. They didn't return any blue slips on the uh, 5th and, and 11th circuits. So, and, so Leahy they, and, Le- and And so there were all these vacancies right. on that court, those two appeals courts, when Trump took over, that he got the, he got the ability Same to Same in fill. Kentucky. And others, so they just would, and Leahy respected the blue slip, it which was a Senate tra- right. tradition. For 100 years, over 100, was it 100 years, years. Three, mm-hmm. only three judges uh, got through who had uh, not had the, their blue slip returned. And part, you know, uh, Hatch, when he was chairman, said, if you're not consulted, properly, then you then the blue slip applies. And I was not consulted properly by my McGahn. And now they're just putting one right. federal judge after another. Just And particularly in the next month. I mean, the, the rumor is that in the next month, there's going to be an even more, if they can get anything done, and there's not much left to the next month, they're going to try to get more. But I just, let me just go back to one thing. I really do resist the notion 
that the Democrats were doing the equivalent to what the Republicans are doing now. Because as I said, even though Jeffrey was talking about the four liberals on the court vote together, I think that that's a function of what is coming up to the courts and not the extent to which they have a similar background. But the Democrats are simply not, there's not a judicial philosophy that is as organized and as coherent as the judicial philosophy that the Federalist Society reflects on the left. There just isn't really as much more of a big tent. So you have people, there may be certain kinds of orthodoxies, and maybe Roe v. Wade is one of them, but the differences all across the matter are much broader than it is with respect to the to the Federalist Society. So, so you have not only a slate of people, but a slate of people whose opinions have been sort of pre-chewed and are clear. Can I go back to Gorsuch and what kind of baloney <laughs> that was? Right. Because... He said, I would stand up and walk out of that room. No, you wouldn't have. Right. Because I would have given up the job I've wanted for my entire life, even though I wouldn't have had to, because all I would have said... The Federalist Society sent me, sir. Well, I mean, to some extent, I mean, it's because all of these have become theater. I actually didn't know that there was a rehearsal room. I never saw. No, there a rehearsal wasn't. Room. That was a joke. Well, okay. there were, but, <laughs> but, but there, but, but there, there in the in the executive office building, they do yes, rehearsals yes. like crazy. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Not, but not in the sen- not in the Senate. No, I, no, I, no. I almost said I after Lindsay did that, where is the rehearsal space? Right, right, I haven't found right. it. No, I was I I certainly <laughs> I was prepared for four days before I was confirmed. There was no question about. About that right, but this was a setup question, so of course he wasn't going to walk away. These hearings have not been real until Kavanaugh. Ironically, this hearing, even though not you know apart from Christine Ford, was the closest we'd ever come to actual really getting to know the person, because otherwise it's all a kabuki ritual. Just going back to the row issue, which you were talking about, you know, the thing I kept returning to is that during the campaign, Donald Trump said any number of times. I will appoint justices to the Supreme Court who will vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And what I think he meant by that was he will appoint justices to the Supreme Court who will vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And I think that's what he's done. Let let me ask about that, because you saw Kavanaugh vote with the other five to not take the Planned Parenthood case. And that's a nothing burger. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that that's was a basically a, a more like that was a procedural vote, right. a preliminary in a in okay, a what case. This they is about. Let's, let's explain okay. what this is about. This was a case in which uh, states could uh, prohibit Medicaid dollars to go to uh, specific Planned states had barred Medicaid dollars to go to Planned Parenthood. It had nothing to do with abortion because federal money can't go for abortion. So this was right. barring Medicaid but funding you, of everything else. If, if, if Medicaid funding is barred from Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood kind of goes folded. out of business. That's right. So, so That's it right. was, no, to me, this was Kavanaugh going like, so you think I'm going to always vote against abortion? But it was, well, ha ha. No, but I think, but this is an easy one. I mean, I think that's right. I, I, this yeah. is an, Jeffrey's right. This is an easy one. This, that's this what is, I'm saying. This yeah. is one in which he could say he could appear to be doing that, but in fact was not. Okay, so let's talk about when the actual cases come in, right? And what are they going to do? Because Jeffrey, I know that you said. Right after um, Kavanaugh was nominated, or maybe after Kennedy just said, I'm, go- I'm going, that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. I believe that to the core of my being. I believe it as well, although it doesn't matter. 
And it doesn't matter in this respect, which is it has been so frittered away. I mean, there are a couple of cases in the pipeline that are full out reverse Roe v. Wade. There's also numbers of cases in the pipeline that were so, you so can frittered it away. Or That's got, right. Got it. That's right. But, 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 I, but I do believe, I believe that Kavanaugh is as clear a vote for reversing Roe v. Wade as there is in the world. I mean, his his position in the case of the the undocumented woman who got pregnant and finds out that she's pregnant while she's in federal custody and goes through all the hoops that she had to go through in Texas. He was know, trying to run out the clock. He on was her, trying right? to run out the clock in a very, very unprincipled way. That's what I was saying about auditioning for this position. He, the, the Roe v. Wade's legitimacy wasn't involved in that case. It wasn't the constitutionality of this that. This was wasn't an immigrant held in, in custody. custody. How old was she? Uh, she was a minor, so she had been under eighteen. Okay, and, and she was pregnant. It was an, wanted an abortion, case. And, right? Yeah. And she, but but she, you know, she has a guardian. She goes through the Texas courts. It's sort of eating up the first trimester to go through every imaginable approval. He says you can't have an abortion. We don't, he writes in dissent ha- happily that she shouldn't have an abortion until a sponsor is appointed. The sponsor could not have stopped her from having abortion. The findings of the Texas court said you were mature enough to make this decision on your own. So he was imposing a standard that could not have stopped her from having an abortion ultimately and whose only purpose was to delay it. That was a dissent for the Federalist Society. See, I'm going to do what I can against abortion no matter what. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a lawless decision from top to bottom. Dissents are interesting. We talked about the marriage equality as one of the reasons Democrats are kind of satisfied with the Supreme Court. I thought Scalia's dissent in that was very gay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's finally... What? What? I I don't even know where to start. Uh, It's your show. Go ahead. It's like you want to... If you want to use that on CNN... <laughs> you can say I talked He's to Frank. He's taking notes, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, let's talk about Chevron now. Um, this uh, you say this is the sleeper, Jeff. Absolutely, you said that. And uh, Nancy, you wanted to talk about well, Professor why, why don't, why don't, Profe- uh, Professor Gertner. Why don't you just say what Chevron is? So, because okay. so, yeah. okay. a lot yes. of people really don't know what. Okay, it is. but let me let me just sort of go thirty thousand feet up for a moment. Congress never legislates specifically, right? Never legislates very, very specifically. Administrative agencies were essential to be basically implement congressional directives in environmental areas and discrimination law. The discrimination law just says don't discriminate and nothing more. And so, so Chevron allows the agencies to make the regs, over the regulations. Time, over time, the agencies would essentially fill in the blanks. And the question is the extent to which a court should respect what the agencies do. And what uh, what evolved over time, and there's much criticism, but not a frontal assault as there is now, that courts would defer to an agency's interpretation of the statute, assuming it was reasonable. Court reasonable defer, is, and that's that's in the language. That's in the language, right? And would, would defer to regulations implemented by an agency that are consistent with the statute. This, this the Chevron is a decision saying all that's of that. That's right, right. The Chevron deference, and when you think about it, putting aside the legal issues, deference to an administrative agency is essential in many respects to keep the government going. The Congress, as you well know, can't possibly legislate with any degree of clarity this or was specificity. This was something that came up in the Kavanaugh hearing. I think it was Senator Sass from Nebraska, but maybe it wasn't, but who basically said, you know, we should do more legislating and the regulatory agencies should do less 
regulations. And no, no, it's impossible. It takes us so long to do anything. Uh, Let me give you an example. The Affordable Care Act, uh, the negotiations started in, I don't know, May of, of 2009 or before that. Uh, it took a long time to get that legislation done. And it took four years to write the regs for that. Let's talk about the political content of Chevron, why yes. Chevron is so important as a substantive political matter. Because if you believe that the government should simply not regulate much, the government should right. leave businesses alone, should leave polluters alone. And this a Chevron often comes up in an environmental context because the laws say the government can ban harmful chemicals. Well, what's a harmful right. chemical? CO2. That's what the, that, well, that's what the Environmental Protection Agency has to pass regs to do. Okay. So the reason conservatives hate Chevron is that it allows the regulatory state to function. It legitimizes all this, these regulations. That's right. what they were. Whereas, and, and this is really the passion of Kavanaugh's life. You know, he is a social conservative. Okay, you know, he follows that, that. But the great passion of his life, the thing that he really cares about is demolishing the administrative state. And, and the way to do it is by saying administrative agencies can't do anything unless it's explicitly authorized by Congress. And even in- then not involving major economic legislation. In other words, if, if it's ambiguous... Well, if, if they're amb- interpreting an ambiguous statute, well, we can do that. Judges should interpret. Judges should be the so ones to do is, that. So this is now they're the opposite of w- what they used to say they were. They said we hate activist judges. Oh. Now they want judges to decide pretty much everything. Well, it's it, that's a whole other discussion. Yes, his his, his view in the guise of interpreting statutes and interpreting these things, he would wind up with a bench that would be doing what heretofore the administrative agencies would have been doing. I mean, he wants the bench to be interpreting uh, what the scope of a, of a statute would be that otherwise an, inter- uh, an administrative <laughs> so they could agency go would like, be. Did I just use heretofore on the air? I know, heretofore. I mean, how about that? It's going to send your ratings through but the, the roof. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I just, <laughs> we have no ratings. The transcript <laughs> It's just a judge thing, you know? Uh, so they're going to be like, uh, when you dig a well, and there are going to be judges looking at what you have to do when you dig a well. Well, the statute, is, <laughs> you know, the statute I mean, says what? the statute says you have to do X, and if it's not, if it's uh, if it's ambiguous, then the court will say, well, I think that X means this. Or alternatively, if the statute says, hey, agency, you should give me regulations on this. Part of his view is that if it's a major economic issue, then that delegation is itself wrong. So, but the regulatory state is very interesting. It's not just a question of undoing the rights so-called revolution of the past 20 years, Roe v. Wade, you know, gay marriage, et cetera, privacy issues. If you carry what they're saying through their logical conclusion, it goes back to the New Deal. It's the, it's the state that has evolved since New Deal economic legislation began. And that, it seems to me, is what this philosophy undoes. That's one of the things that really came up in the Tea Party movement, interestingly enough, that the Tea Party, you know, to the extent it was a intellectual movement, was about undoing the government's power to regulate. It's sort of the, the, the fount of the decisions that say, you know, Congress can regulate the economy. 
And in the Tea Party movement, they said, you know, no, the Commerce Clause doesn't allow that. And it was part of the attack on the Affordable Care Act. Which is very odd. I mean, the 64 Civil Rights Bill said that a lunch counter was interstate commerce because if you got the hamburger from another state, right? then that's it. But health care isn't? You know, Roberts ruled that health care wasn't, except he sort of he led it in through the through the tax tax, clause, tax right. cause. But I thought that was crazy. I thought that was a completely crazy but, decision. But, but, now, but the, the result but again, was But the right. implications of this, you got to sort of step back and say, this is really not just dealing with environmental. It's dealing with d- discrimination law has an agency that that articulates what discrimination law is. It's it's the whole ball of wax that enables the government to function. And it's not just that Congress is not specific about what they do. Legislation is a product of compromise. It's not a surprise that Clause A goes in one direction and Clause B goes in another. So we want to keep Chevron. Wickard v. Philbin is that <laughs> Commerce Clause case. Oh, I'm the, so where glad in the you 30s, remember that. Where right. after they were striking down all the after FDR's Lockner. laws, right, right. after after you know the the nine old men, where where Roosevelt you know almost did the court packing plan, they changed direction. And Wickard v. Philbin, they said, you know what, the Commerce Clause allows you to regulate the stream of commerce, which allows you to regulate the Woolworths counter because the hamburgers were in interstate commerce. Okay, so okay. That, that, which is the basis. So they would, <laughs> I'm glad sorry, you clarified when, that. They would get rid of the civil rights laws. They would get rid, I mean, presumably it, they could. Right? It, it, Absolutely, it, it, because they're all yeah. based on the Commerce Clause. Right, that's okay, right. let's go uh, from Chevron to elections and uh, what has been done uh, by the Supreme Court and what has been done in terms of things like um, gerrymandering, of course, to how our elections are held. Now, we saw, for example, in Georgia, probably uh, election decided by the Secretary of State having the... Right. The, that <laughs> Who also happened to be the candidate for governor. Yeah. yeah. And also in North Carolina, a few years back, where they uh, basically did a, a an election law that made it very hard for uh, black people to made it harder for them to vote. It, 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 the Fourth Circuit, I think, said that it was they targeted black people with almost surgical precision. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. OK. So that and that was because preclearance was taken out of the Voting Rights Act. Preclearance, which meant that states that had engaged in these kinds of practices could not materially change their voting unless it was cleared by the Department of Justice. And that was critical, as you saw in this past election, because it's much more difficult to fight voter fraud and voter suppression after the fact, after there's a candidate that has said that they have won. That is much, it's much more difficult also, to undo the election. Voter fraud voter is fraud not isn't the right a word. big right. problem. It's a non-existent right. problem. Right, and, right. And, but when it does happen, it's Republicans, it's Republicans who do it. And they saw it this that's time in North Carolina. North Carolina yeah. And we've seen that before. Right. We've seen where they toss, they go out and they register people to vote. Right. And then they toss the Democrats. And, and this is the classic example of what you said at the beginning of this show, which was, it's the conservatives who are the judicial activists now. Oh, totally. You know, the, the Voting yeah. Rights Act was reauthorized uh, under George W. Bush virtually unanimously I think it in was the House. Unanimous. Uh, right, right, right. I mean, in one the or, there was like one or two negative okay. votes. Right. All right. But but so so you know the idea of judicial activism or judicial restraint is you defer to the democratically elected branches of government. That's what conservatives always used to criticize liberals for. Is you don't defer. Here you have 
unanimity, the executive branch signing the law, the legislative branch, and John Roberts in what I regard as his worst decision as, as chief justice in the Shelby County case says, you know, the South has changed so much since 1965, we're going to get rid of the whole clearance procedure. Right. And to the day when Shelby County came out, North Carolina and Texas started changing their laws to make it harder for black people and poor but, people but it's, to vote. But it's explicit. I, 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 there's, an, there's a group called the Institute for Justice, which is a public interest firm associated with Federalist Society. And they literally say... They sound, is, though, like... A, I like the, it's, the name. Yes, right, right. It sounds that? great. It says, Wait, it's, they sound like a good group. Oh, yeah. Just, <laughs> What's their name again? Institute for Justice. They oh, don't gee. say in justice. They say justice. But listen to what they say. Okay. It's not judicial activism to strike down unconstitutional laws or government actions. It is judicial engagement, taking the Constitution seriously and applying it. Refusing to strike down unconstitutional laws is not laudable judicial restraint. It's judicial abdication. So this is really an invitation, as they say. In so it's the- turning on its head. Right. I think in my first debate for uh, the Senate in, in 2008, we were asked, uh, what justice in the Supreme Court do you admire? And at the time, I, I said Breyer because he believes in a living constitution. I think I was right. And Norm Coleman, my opponent, said uh, Scalia, and because I don't think that judges should make law oh, yeah, from the no. bench. And that's what they they just would say that over and over again. That's what the answer was then. They don't say that anymore. There, There is clearly an effort to undo not just the rights revolution, but undo the administrative state from the 30s. And that's going to take reversing precedent, and it's going to take reversing legislation. Kavanaugh, and this is, a, this is clearly a thing, Kavanaugh talked about when he was, when he, in his writings, he would talk about vertical precedent. And there is such a thing as vertical precedent. That means that lower courts, you know, have to apply the precedent of higher courts. But I'd actually, he could have just talked about precedent as if it is a singularly important thing for a government, for a, for a judiciary to do, just follow precedent. But it was ver- vertical precedent, he would say over and over again. That's the way he would talk about it, which was almost a cue to say, when I get on the Supreme Court, forget about it. And, well, and, vertically, order- he's your old the turtle. I mean, he's <laughs> up there, right? <laughs> he is indeed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yertle the turtle? That's yeah, it's a Dr. Dr. Seuss. Seuss. Yes, yeah. okay, but uh, it's okay. okay. I mean, and, and, and Yertle. Kids are older. <laughs> Yertle uh, uh, piled up these turtles so he could see more of the landscape and be the king of all he ruled. I see. That's a great analogy. I will use it in my class, you know. This it's is going to be taught at Harvard well, Law that's School. That's really it is. Dr. Seuss as judicial philosophy. I like it. Well, it wasn't great. It was not great, <laughs> now that I think about it. But, uh, okay, so uh, I, I don't understand really vertical precedent versus precedent because it's everybody. It's the Supreme Court. It's at the top. But what he's basically saying, like when he told Susan Collins it's settled, what he meant it was except, you know, it's settled so, so except far. I can unsettle it. That's right. Exactly I mean, right. every precedent is settled right. until the Supreme Court unsettles. That's, That's right. the job of the Federalist Society is to unsettle well, and settled the, and law. This is an invitation. That's what we do. This is an invitation to do that. And, you know, I mean, the, when the Democrats, it's not talk about Roe v. Wade. It's not just Roe v. Wade. It really is the whole skein of rights and, you know, theories that we've been operating under in the administrative state. There's no question about it. That's what they're heading for. Right. You know, 
every uh, you know a circuit court judge who's uh, taken office since uh, Trump became president is one of those guys. That's why they were picked is because they are one of those guys or a handful of them girls. Not many. <laughs> Not many. Well, no. by guys, I meant. I know you. Know, I know you don't. Know but you but I, I think it is it is so striking when you look at President Trump's judicial appointments that the number of women is way down from Obama and the number of Minority. racial minorities right. is practically invisible. Right. I mean, it, you know, diversity is just not a concern. When I you remember, look at how he's how he's tra- staffed his White House, how he's staffed right. anyone around the judiciary, he just doesn't care about diversity. Jeff Sessions, when he was ranking member, and I used to go to every judiciary hearing, even if it was just a couple of district court judges that no one had any problem with. And uh, remember, we had 60 Democrats. At this, so, But I'd go. And uh, Sessions was ranking member, so he'd be there, and Leahy would be there because he was the chairman. And if there was a, a woman, if there was a uh, African-American, if there was a Hispanic, if there was an Asian-American, he would uh, say, he'd find something, said, now you say that diversity is important. Does that mean, I can't do sessions, uh, does that mean that you would... Um, when someone is in the court, don't you have to treat them, everyone the same? Well, and it's like, and they'd have they'd be prepared for that. Yeah. And one day he didn't show up, and we had a black woman, I think from Rhode Island, and I just said, well, since Senator Sessions isn't here, <laughs> I'm going to ask that question. And mm-hmm. Sessions staff really liked it because right, they also thought it was ridiculous. There you go. <laughs> well, there you go. No, no, it's a. Okay, let's um, let's see. Let's talk about you know about the mandatory FBI hearings now that we've had since Clarence Thomas. I didn't know they started I with didn't Clarence either. Thomas. Yeah. I, I mean, I know about these hearings. Tell tell us what goes on in those because you've been in them. They're 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 closed. Okay, the let me let me explain to people what these are. So after the nominee has answered his or her uh, last question from the senators, the senators go into the actual uh, hearing room for the Judiciary Committee because the one it's held in is, is a much larger room, and uh, have to review his the nominee's FBI report. And the reason they do this is that when Clarence Thomas, when this happened with Clarence Thomas, it took a long time. They were in there a long time, and everyone went, well, something's up, <laughs> right? And that's how everybody knew something's up. So now they have a mandatory meeting of the Judiciary Committee in our normal hearing room. And the FBI report so far has contained nothing, nothing bad. Have you not seen the FBI report until you go to this closed hearing, or, or is it available to you before have, then? I guess it's available. I've never looked at it. I mean, oh. I, if something was going to be raised, it would. I think I would have heard about it. But this is now perfunctory. And you just sit there for 20 minutes. So, now, And then the, the public hearing follows that? No, it's before. No, no. It's, well, after, that, it's after the public hearing, isn't it? After the public hearing with the nominee. And then afterwards, you still hear testimony from other people. Witnesses. Right, okay, right. Yeah, from witnesses. So uh, the first year I was there, I had brought up Sonia Sotomayor, said that she had uh, become a prosecutor because she liked uh, Perry Mason, in which I said, you became prosecutor because of a TV show in which the prosecutor Constantly lost, lost every case. <laughs> right, right. And she said, he won one. 
And then I ignored that, but then at the end of my 30-minute thing, I had about a minute and a half left, and I went, well, okay, what was the, what was the case that Perry Mason lost? And she said, I don't know. And I said, didn't the White House prepare you? Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> Which was a mistake because I, I had only been there like about a week, and everyone goes, does Franken have to be funny? <laughs> and, you know, I got that all that press stuff. So then the uh, Internet goes nuts, right? And everybody's talking about uh, what case Perry Mason lost. And so, so we go into the normal hearing room, and Tom Coburn says, Actually, you lost two cases. Then Sessions says, you know what I liked? Dragnet. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was the hearing. Yeah, and then Cornyn goes, uh, I like Highway Patrol. And I said, I worked with Broderick Crawford because he hosted SNL. And then suddenly, all the Republicans liked me Oh, because okay. I had worked with Broderick oh, Crawford. Really? There you oh, go. So uh, that's that one. And then, then on Gorsuch, they brought Gorsuch in. This is the last one I, I was on. You know, Grassley says, well, there's nothing in, in the report. You know, does anybody have any questions for the judge? And no one had a question. And then there was like, we got to stay here for 20 minutes. Oh. So Diane Feinstein says to me, Al, tell a joke. Oh. And she's ranking. So uh, I go like, well, come on, Diane. Okay, so... Until it says, well, you told me one. And I said, oh, okay. During the hearing with Gorsuch, both Lindsey Graham and Tom Tillis had said, boy, I, I, you're Columbia and Harvard. I wish I had your education, but I couldn't get into those schools. And I went over to Tillis and said, actually, Lindsey probably could have. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I tell you, you said something funny in a hearing of a uh, friend of mine who was up for a district court judgeship. You probably don't remember this. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesse Furman, who was nominated to the district district court mm-hmm. in, in Manhattan, um, who happens to be a friend of mine, I forgot which senator it was. I think uh, I think it was Kyle, who was from Arizona, who was okay. on the committee. Right? He brought out something that uh, had Jesse like had in, written in, in college, yeah. and it was it was it, he was sort of making fun of George Herbert Walker Bush when he had thrown up on the Japanese prime minister and it was it was kind of disrespectful and 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 Jesse was What's an undergraduate funny about that? well well and 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 and, and you know <laughs> Jesse said something about well you know I was young and whatever and and you said you know I I I think it's very important that there never be any humor involved in politics <laughs> you said that. yeah and um, the rest is history yeah. right, but Jesse go. got confirmed there you go well Okay, well, that was great. All right. You guys are good. You guys yeah, know well, your your legal stuff. We know, we know our legal and stuff. And we'll come back. We'll do this as a continuing doodad. Yes. Well, you, you, you're you you're Oh, wait a, a minute. This is your show. I'm sorry. I lost my head. I would do that, but you'd have to... You're, you're here in Washington periodically, That's you? right. That's right. Okay. And also, uh, I you said that, Jeffrey. Jeffrey didn't, and you're kind of making a commitment for him. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm here a lot. I'm yeah. writing a book about the Mueller investigation. How about that? Huh? Oh, that's great. Yeah. All right. All right, you guys. Nah, I, I just, it's coming out my ears, this thing. So okay. by the time All you right. write this book, no one will be interested. Oh, <laughs> never true. Never true. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Professor Nancy Gertner. Thank you, Jeffrey Tubin, Chief Analyst. <laughs> on legal stuff for uh, <laughs> CNN 
staff writer for the New Yorker. Correct. Uh, not, really chi- not chief staff writer. Just just there are no chef chief chief staff writers. Just regular old <laughs> staff writer. Okay. Well, but, but I love, I enjoy your stuff in, well, thank in, you. in the New Yorker. All right, everybody. Uh, hopefully, we'll have another one of these, That'd be great. and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Leo Kotke for his beautiful music. Thanks for listening. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.